and welcome to another magical Saturday stream. I don't know why I say it like that. I just did it a few times and now this is just apparently a thing I do. And this will be the last stream for about a month or so. I won't be here for our, our normal Halloween content talking about the creepiest parts of Gurm's world. We're going to go ahead and we're going to do it today. We're going to go full Halloween about a month early like I'm a target or something. In the past we've covered the night fort. We've talked about House of the Undying. God, I forget what else we've done. Oh, one year we did with Shakes and Sanrixian, we did the three witches thing. That was awesome. That was a lot of fun too. But today we're going to change gears a little bit from places and talk about things. We're going to talk about the shadowy assassins birthed from Melisandre's fiery loins, known lovingly in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom as shadow babies. These bizarre creatures of smoke that live supposedly only one day, going out into the world to kill before evaporating again back into nothing. What are these things, though? Why are they in this story? Why are shadow assassins a thing in A Song of Ice and Fire? And Perhaps there are a few other shadow assassinations that may have missed that are hinted at but not confirmed in the story. So you can maybe see them if you look closely enough. We're going to attempt to answer those questions today and more. Before we get going, we're going to get a few promo things done as we normally do. Um, just going to do it now instead of like halfway through the stream or at the end of it when I forget. Because I do forget. <laughs> Of course, if you enjoy these streams and my videos and any sort of content I put out, if you want to do me a favor, this is all I really want, go ahead and hit that subscribe button to see more from me, as well as hit the little bell button right next to it. That's the one that gets notifications sent out to you when new content goes live. I've seen in the past people go, oh, I can never find your streams. I never see your videos when they go live, but I watch them all later. Why is that? Because you haven't hit that, that bell button and allowed notifications. So... Go ahead and do that. If you and also, as always, slam that MF and like button. All these things help more people find the channel and my content because that's how YouTube works these days. It's all based on inputs into an algorithm, trying to guess what you want to watch and then finding it based on what other people like you have been watching. It's all complicated and confusing, but basically it just needs inputs from the audience to let know that you're enjoying what you're watching. That's how you do it. You hit the like button, you subscribe, do all the things. As per usual, if there are 150 likes, I'll put on my very, very fancy Derm hat for the rest of the stream. And at 200 likes, we'll go ahead and transform into full wizard mode for the rest of the stream. I guess wizard mode sounds a little bit more fancy than I will put on the hat sitting behind me. Sitting behind me. And if you're feeling... A little bit more generous there's you can also support me at patreon at patreon.com slash joe magician you get access to new content ahead of time like the usually a day or two depending on which level you're at you get access to the joe magician private slack channel and patron only content example of which as of this morning early this morning because i was up late finishing it unfortunately because of all the technical problems i had chapter seven of the dying of the light read through went live for Archmaesters and up. If this is your first time in, you don't know what I'm talking about. Dying of the Light is George R. R. Martin's very first novel published decades ago. A sci-fi story set on the loneliest planet in the galaxy with a broken-hearted protagonist trying to reclaim his life quite foolishly. 
And by life, I mean his girlfriend. And he's put her on a pedestal. And he's a bit of a dumbass. But it's a really good book, honestly. It's been a lot of fun doing it. So far, I've had Aziz from History of Westeros and Maester Mary from the Learn Hand podcast as guests. Trying to get a few more in the future. Lady Gwyn of Radio Westeros has said that she'll come on towards the end of the book. Actually, it's right here. It's a short book. <laughs> this is a really short book. Actually, let's come. So this is A Storm of Swords. This is Dying of a Light. Really short. This is like a quarter of it. Proof that when he wants to, George can actually write quickly and succinctly. But yeah, if you want to check that out, there's a link in the description to a free sample from chapter two, I think, of me and Aziz. Also, if you feel like tipping or, or whatever, there's obviously Super Chats enabled. Maura Lee is going to go ahead and own the top of the chat for the next like hour with her $50 Super Chat here. Or PayPal, if you don't want to give half of the money to YouTube, which is what ends up happening. There's a link in the description for that, too. Don't really care. I mean, if you want to, up to you. It's not out. Raise the possibility. And speaking of, I want to thank two very, very generous folks that tipped me before I even went live today. A first was Danny McKay. He gave me uh, $5 as his normal Saturday. He signed right at me. Thanks, Danny. Obviously, morally, this is actually $100 on this, on this uh, stream. She accidentally did one last week, too. The message has been lost because of YouTube, but it basically said, like, uh, thank you. I really enjoy your content. Basically the same as this one. Happy spooktacular Saturday. Looking forward to today's stream on Shadow Babies and Shadow Magic. Oh, we're going all in on the magic and weirdness of A Song of Ice and Fire. Considerably fewer characters in Dying of the Light, to be fair. Yeah, that's true. There's only one POV in Dying of the Light. And quite a... Nobody has even died yet, I don't think. It's a much smaller cast. It's a, it's Even though it's set on a sci-fi planet, it's basically like... It's basically like a play. There's only been like three or four places any of them go and characters just keep coming in and out and talking to each other. You can see why I ended up getting into TV writing. So Morley, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. But there's, there was one that came in kind of randomly last night and it was from somebody that doesn't, doesn't often get to make the streams, but they often comment on the videos afterwards. Karen Targaryen, she went ahead and sent me $500. It was... I, I, my first instinct was to email her back and say, hey, I think you put in an extra zero. Do you want me to refund it? Did you mean 50 or five? Like, this is way too much. She said no. This is apparently what she wanted to send me. Uh, her message was, love your streams and content. Been listening and watching for years. Want to make a donation for all your work. And Kate, can't wait until you get back. Thanks. And $500. So I'm not really sure what to do with that. That's an insane amount of money. And all at once and i don't know thank you thank you so much Kara. that's it was overwhelming to see i thought i was having a bit of a stroke when i saw it in my email i just want to make clear like nobody has to do this like seriously just like and subscribe that's all i care about but like holy shit i don't really i don't know what i'm going to do with that that's that's just a lot of money but yeah thank thank you so much i'm glad you enjoy what you watch i'm trying to think of more like intellectual things to say or like nicer thing i don't i don't know it's just it's an overwhelming thing to do so i guess the fact that you stunned me with into silence is probably probably makes the makes the point i can get a second wizard's hat i can get quite a few wizard hats if i wanted to with that but yeah thank you guys for all the support i really appreciate it it's makes my little hobby a little bit more a little easier to pay for the different different programs and whatever stuff i use because 
this is just a hobby. So that's that's basically where these tips go. They go into paying for software license, lights, equipment, that kind of stuff. Um, sorry, I'm going to try and talk again. So about when I'll be back for streaming purposes. So what's going on is that in the upcoming weeks, I have a wedding and a bachelor party that I'm going to. Obviously, they'll both be taking place on the weekend. And in between them will be one of the weekends I have to go and I have to work. So I just figured since uh, of the next five or six weekends, four of them are already spoken for. I figured I would just take a break here and take a break from streaming until about mid-November. Uh, I haven't figured out which date I'll come back on. It will probably be like, let's see here, probably like the 20th looks like and i honestly wanted to use that time for a lot more uh, video creation than i have been i've been kind of putting that off for quite a long time i mean if you look at my channel at this point the vast majority of stuff that has been uploaded is streams and not so much videos and i didn't really make this channel to be a streaming platform that wasn't really the point and that's kind of what it is at the moment a part of that obviously comes from covid where being being unable to go anywhere, this was like a social. But I want to get back to spending more time on videos, and I, I find them more fun to make, and lets me be a little bit more, I guess, polished on what I make. Although in a lot of these streams, there are basically little theory videos in there anyway. Like you, I don't turn my brain off. I just want to develop them more. This isn't meant as like, oh no, feel bad for me <laughs> that I want to. I don't want to be streaming as much or anything like that. It's more just like, I'm just telling you guys, I'm going to try and prioritize my free time a little bit better. I'm going to try and push it more into making videos. That's what I like doing most of all on YouTube. You see, I imagine a bunch of hats on top of each other like babushka dolls. <laughs> yeah, just just a series of hats. That's That's really all I am at this point. So I'm still going to be doing streams, but I want to make sure that they are not as much the focus as they are right now because, yeah. If you look over the last year, I think I've uploaded four videos, three videos, and way, 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 way more streams between like Crusader Kings and stuff. So we're gonna, I'm gonna try and change that balance a little bit. And with that, with all that stuff out of the way, let's get into the mystery of the shadows with swords. So there's an opening quote here. This one's from Brienne, and I really like it because it kind of shows the horror that George is trying to get across with these things and the impact on those that have seen these things and just how it's it's very alike to the others basically in terms of once people see these things and they understand they're real their total outlook on the world changes they no longer know the world they live in so here's the quote all the candles were guttering out and the cold was thick around her something was moving through green darkness something foul and horrible was hurtling towards her king. She wanted to protect him, but her limbs felt stiff and frozen, and it took more strength than he had to lift than she had to lift her hand. And when the shadow sword sw sliced through the green seal gorget and the blood began to flow, she saw that the dying king was not Renly after all, but Jamie Lannister, and she had failed him. Now this is a dream, this is Rand's dream sequence, but you can see here that the experience of seeing Renly die firsthand from her is irrevocably changed her worldview that she dreams about that she sees it in her nightmares that she sees his death as a total uh, failure on her part that she feels hopeless even with her magical swords 
and all of her skills and all the years training. So yeah, shadow assassins and shadow babies. So I thought we'd talk uh, talk about first, like what are the known examples of these things in the books? Like where have these things showed up and what have they done? So the first one, well, actually both of them happen in A Clash of Kings, both examples. In A Clash of Kings, Stannis Baratheon has a very, very big problem. He feels that he has the righteous cause of action to claim the throne of Westeros away from Joffrey Lannister, but he does not have the troops to do so. I joined Nauticast a while back to talk about these chapters and these scenarios in particular, more about the Courtney Penrose one than the Renly one, but the, they're, they're intertwined but mostly about how Stannis feels the moral problems of the assassinations, especially killing Courtney Penrose as well as potentially Edric Storm, and that he's attempting to get Davos to talk him out of it. Yet at the same time, feeling this crushing weight of being a hero of destiny, being a Zorahai come again, that he has to fight off the darkness, that these, these pressures are forcing his hand make sacrifices for this cause the things that stannis doesn't really want to do but more or less feels that he has to he doesn't have a choice in the matter that's going to be a future video by the way i made a patron promise a while back that i would make a video about stannis where i don't insult him the old the whole time and it's going to be partly about this i swear i'm not going to insult stannis in that video i may today because i enjoy insulting stannis he sort of has it coming but at this point in the story Renly Baratheon is his main problem, as Renly has managed to use his people skills with Stannis Lax and recognition of the importance of appealing to lords rather than just demanding their service to acquire the largest standing army in Westeros at this point. Along with most of the Stormlander houses, Renly has aligned himself with the Tyrells to gain just a truly enormous host, and they're essentially just partying <laughs> At this point, they're holding tourneys. Renly is making up his King's Guard or his Rainbow Guard, as he calls them. They're sort of taking their time getting down to King's Landing, almost like George has them, the sort of sitting there waiting for Stannis. Don't hassle the Manus. Oh, I will hassle the Manus all I want. <laughs> he has it coming. Yes, yeah, Stannis should see a dentist. Grinding your teeth is not good for you. So that's kind of the problem here. In order to take the Red Keep and King's Landing and then keep them, keeping them is the, the big problem here. Stannis needs the troops that Renly has. He has not been super successful in convincing his, what he feels is his, his, his vassals to follow him, even though, of course, they're not his vassals. They're Renly's vassals. But, of course, that's a big whole thing with Stannis about how they're re it's really his and Storm's End belongs to him and how could Robert do this? Blah, 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 blah. There's a whole big thing. Stannis feels entitled to them. The lords think, no, nah, we like Renly better. And also, he's actually our liege lord, so... Most of them go for Renly. But Stannis isn't going to get those troops by killing Renly in a battle, which is what he's set up to do. He needs Renly to die in order to keep the troops intact so that he can then use them. It does him no good to stage this incredible comeback victory where his smaller force manages to kill tons and tons of Stormlanders and Reachmen. He still needs them. He needs them intact and he needs them ready to fight because he's about to march them straight to King's Landing to try and take over the city or put them on boats to sell them. I don't think that plan is particularly in place at this point anyway. But again, he needs Renly to die for this to happen. So in comes Melisandre with a solution saying essentially that the Lord of Light has shown her in the flames that Renly will die. And then afterwards, 
all of his troops will go over to Stannis, which Stannis is like, wow, perfect. This is exactly what I want. But like, how are we going to do this? It's not like they can hire the Navy SEALs or a bunch or like secret assassins or anything like that. Getting somebody in the middle of a military camp, which Renly is, and getting them to kill him, considering the fact that he's also guarded by his new Rainbow Guard. Spoiler alert, Renly saw in advance that people are going to try and kill him, probably Stannis. And that's why he got bodyguards ahead of time. So in order to do this, it's, it's actually it's quite hard. You can't really just hire a cat's paw and have them run in like the one did in Winterfell to try and kill Bran. And it's probably unlikely you're going to be able to shoot Renly with like an arrow at the beginning of the battle or something like that. And that wouldn't even, it's not even clear that would prevent the battle at that point. Stannis is like, yeah, it'd be great if Renly died. But like, I don't think it can happen. How are we going to do this? Melisandre's with the big brain moves. Oh yeah, that's true, Dornish Dame. A faceless man, if they had the time and money, but they don't have either of those things. This is all happening very quickly. They can't wait around for Jack and Hagar or anybody else. They've got to do it now. So Melisandre has essentially tells him, well, doesn't really tell him as much to sort of, we don't see the exchange itself, but what's clear is that Stannis is more or less in denial about what exactly happened. But he knows that he and Melisandre were somehow responsible for Renly dying. Again, we don't we don't see the exchange from the perspective of Stannis or Davos or Melisandre. Instead, we only see the actual murder itself from Catelyn Stark's POV. At this point in the story, she's in the camp of Renly, literally in his tent, trying to convince him to, hey, don't fight Stannis. We all need to group up. Like the only way we're going to beat the Lannisters is together. That kind of thing. Stop fighting. Famous thing from the show where it's like, I'll smash your heads together so that you remember your brothers, that kind of thing. So yeah, this, this all happens in front of Catelyn Stark. So I have the quote here. It's kind of a long one. I beg you in the name of the mother, Catelyn began when a sudden gust of wind flung open the door of the tent. She thought she glimpsed movement. But when she turned her head, it was only the king's shadow shifting against the silken walls. She heard Renly, Renly begin a jest his shadow moving, lifting its sword, black on green, candles guttering, shivering. Something was queer, wrong, and then she saw Renly's sword still in its scabbard, sheathed still, but the shadow sword. Hold, said Renly in a small, puzzled voice, heartbeat before the steel of his gorget parted like cheesecloth beneath the shadow of a blade that was not there. He had time to make a small, thick gasp before the blood came gushing out of his throat. You're great. No, cried Brienne the Blue when she saw that evil flow, sounding as scared as any little girl. The king stumbled into her arms, a sheet of blood creeping down the front of his armor, a dark tide, a dark red tide that drowned his green and gold. More candles guttered out. Renly tried to speak, but he was choking on his own blood. His legs collapsed, and only Brienne's strength held him up. She threw back her head and screamed, wordless in her anguish. The shadow, something evil had happened there, she knew, something that she could not begin to understand. Renly never cast that shadow. Death came in that door, blew the life out of him as swift as the wind snuffed out his candles. I swear it, you know me, it was Stannis killed him. This is when the Rainbow Guards comes in to try and 
figure out why Renly's dying. They about are they are about to kill Catelyn and Brienne. The young knight stared at this mad woman with pale and frightened eyes. Stannis, how? I do not know. Sorcery, some dark magic. There was a shadow, a shadow. Her own voice sounded wild and crazed to her, but the words poured out of her in a rush as the blades continued to clash behind her. A shadow with a sword. I swear it. I saw. Are you blind? The girl loved him. Help her. She glanced back. She She glanced back, saw the second guardsman fall, his blade dropping from limp fingers. Outside, there was more shouting, more angry men rebursting in on them in any instant she knew. She is innocent, Robar. You have my word on my husband's grave and my honor as a Stark. So this isn't explained until later why Catelyn immediately goes, well, it had to be Stannis. It is Stannis. Well, the fact is the, sh- the shadow that came up behind Renly had Stannis Baratheon's face on it. It becomes a lot more clear when Stannis confronts Davos about his moral quandary. We're going to get into more of like the actual yes, it was Stannis who literally did this. And it wasn't just like an impression of him or anything like that. But so next we get the Courtney Penrose murder. This time, though, before Stannis does it, he's quite troubled. He's not sure that he wants to go through with it. He thinks that it's it was quite evil to kill his brother. But, you know, he kind of had to. He needed the troops. But Courtney Penrose, he's nothing like especially the killing of potentially Edric Storm to be sacrificed. So what happens in this, uh, this is what I was on not a cast for the exchange here between Davos and Stannis, where Stannis essentially goes to him and instead of just ordering him to go help Melisandre kill Courtney, he says, he essentially begs Davos to talk him out of it, prevent, present the counter arguments, tell him why what he's doing is wrong. So he doesn't have to, again, it's not just because of Courtney Penrose, but he's thinking about killing Idric Storm, sacrificing him in the future. That's the whole point of them being at Storm's end. There is some discussion about like, well, if we get beaten, we need somewhere to retreat to. Therefore, we need Storm's end beforehand, but that's not really what's going on. He's doing it out of pride and the fact that he needs Idric Storm or Melisandre has told him he needs Idric Storm. Eventually, Davos relents and he does what he's asked to by Stannis, which is actually kind of a weird ask. He tells him that he needs to get his boat and take Lady Melisandre and smuggle her into Storm's End through the secret passage that he previously brought the onions in through. Uh, good, qu- good question by Isabel Lamego. I actually understand the logic behind Renly's murder, but Courtney Penrose called for a one-on-one match. Why didn't he fight him? Because Stannis did not want to essentially <laughs> have the possibility that he could lose. He needed this to happen. He didn't want to find himself in a situation where Courtney gets a lucky strike and kills him, or they do champions and his champion loses. He needs it to happen 100%. He ends up saying in the book, essentially, that the that it's a trap. That the idea that you want to, that somebody's challenging you to trial by combat, which is essentially what it is, is the last effort of somebody that is trying to evade the inevitable. I mean, they could always just siege it. It would take longer, but they could do it. So that's more or less why Stannis didn't go through with this. I actually talked about that a lot in my, my now very wrong video about what will happen in season eight between Jon Snow and the Night King. But it's basically a running thing. The a trial by combat, a one by one challenge, a one on one challenge is usually a trap somehow. Either it's somebody that's in over their head or has no hope of victory. So 
They're trying to just get lucky. And somebody with a blade, which can happen. I mean, it's one of those things where people tend to have the idea that somebody's a better swordsman or a better fighter and somebody else, they will always win. And that doesn't end up being true. There's always risk in it. So that's essentially why. It's, it's riskier than he wants. So yeah, eventually, sorry, getting back to it. Eventually Davos does relent and he does what he's asked to. He takes Melisandre to the secret passage under Storm's End. Again, I would go seek out Nauticast content on this chapter and this whole scenario for a much more detailed understanding of the morals at play, uh, the different arguments. They did an, a really excellent job focusing on what is a pivotal part of Stannis's, uh, Stannis's chapters, but also, well, not Stannis's chapters, Davos's chapters, but their role in a Clash of King, what they mean. I think they did like four or five episodes total on this whole sec whole section. I mean, they call themselves Nauticast, Jeff and Emmett, but we also we all know it's actually the Stannis and Davos cast. You know, come on, buddy. It's just Stannermen and Davos men. That's that's what that podcast is. That's exactly right. Elliot. Didn't Jamie offer Rob Stark 101 combat when he was caught? Exactly. He did it because it was his only chance to win. Rob turned him down for the same reason that Stannis turns down Courtney Penrose. It's a stupid thing. It's a stupid thing to accept for anybody. Oh, hey, $5 from a Sean Dewey, 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 not here long, wanted to catch the stream before I nap for work. Love what you're doing. I love Davos so much. Love Davos so much. Very underrated character from George. I totally agree. Davos is a great character. His POVs are predictably pretty excellent. He's one of George's better written characters. And although it's funny that he did not exist at first, he was inserted to solve the problem that he wanted more attention put on what was going on with Stannis rather than going inside his head. He made up Davos. But yeah, thank you for the super chat. Really appreciate it, Sean. Appreciate it. Um, so we get this really horrifying look at how the shadow assassins or shadow babies are actually created, I guess, or they are birthed from this chapter. Another uh, long, long quote here, but worth it, especially if we're going full Halloween creepy stuff. Davos raised a hand to shield his eyes and his breath caught in his throat. Melisandre had thrown back her cowl and shrugged out of the other smothering robe. Beneath she was naked, naked and huge with child. Swollen breasts hung heavy against her chest and her belly bulged as if near to bursting. Gods preserve us, he whispered, and heard her answering laugh, deep and throaty. Her eyes were hot coals. The sweat that dappled her skin seemed to glow with a light of its own. Melisandre shone. Panting, she squatted and spread her legs. Blood ran down her thighs, black as ink. Her cry might have been, in, might have been agony or ecstasy or both. And Davos saw the crown of the child's head push its way out of her. Two arms wiggled free, grasping, black fingers coiling around Melisandre's straining thighs, pushing until the whole of the shadow slid out into the world and rose taller than Davos. All is the tunnel, towering above the boat. He had only an instant to look at it before it was gone, twisting between the bars of the portcullis and racing across the surface of the water. That instant was long enough. He knew that shadow as he knew the man who'd cast it. No, Daniel, it's definitely Stannis that kills Renly. Nope. The trick of uh, George's writing. But anyway, as we just saw, 
Afterwards, we hear from Tyrion in the small council what the, the shadow baby actually did. It somehow found Sir Courtney, Sir Courtney Penrose within the walls of Storm's End. Courtney was refusing to yield the castle and Edric Storm to Stannis. Davos correctly deduced that Mel and Stannis were playing to sacrifice the boy for Rulor's fav- uh, favor at some point, even though Stannis said they totally weren't going to. Yes, they were going to. So the shadow picks up Courtney Penrose and throws him from a tower killing the man in the fall. The way the small council understands it is that they're told it was suicide, that apparently Courtney just up and jumped from the tower. Most people go to the other conclusion that this was actually a murder, that it wasn't Courtney who jumped, but it was his men who threw him from the tower to avoid a long siege, that they wanted to surrender and changing commanders would do that, which is actually what ends up happening. Immediately after Courtney Penrose is dead, I think I forget his name, something Flowers. He's a bastard from the Reach. Almost immediately hands over the castle and surrenders, which is what Stannis wanted anyway. One thing to pick up on here as you start turning in your head, like what other scenarios could there be for shadow assassins? It's the implausibility of the shadow baby thing killing the person that ends up being what disguises it nobody's mind when you hear about somebody's murder goes like oh well it must have been a shadow baby we will as the audience but no one in universe so you should expect that if these things are being used elsewhere nobody's going to jump to that conclusion you have to kind of recognize it yourself that's very sus who could not love davos oh meadows that's right i'm sorry lord meta it's one of those names that just slipped out of my brain. I think it's literally said his name, Elwood Meadows. That's him. Elwood Meadows is the Lord of Grassfield Keep. He's the one that turned over Storm's End after after Courtney Penrose is dead. Thank you for getting that one right. Yep, 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 yep. Got that one wrong. So, for instance, the story being told about Renly's death is that Bran of Tarth, or Brienne the Blue, as she is called at this point, is blamed for Renly's death as an act of jealousy of a woman in love couldn't bear seeing her cutie boy Renly married off to someone else that it's framed as jealousy that she went mad with it that got so close to him and it's well known that she was in love with Renly so that's why she killed him. Courtney Penrose also is reported of suicide most assume it's a murder that tends to be sort of the science for these murders there's a hint of sorcery George inputs a implausible story about something about a shadow or it doesn't quite add up and then go back to it it's like oh yeah it definitely was a shadow assassin it's just nobody else knows that it's just you the reader so it's kind of a fun little puzzle for for you to go through and see if there are any other scenarios for where this may have happened again go check out not a cast discussion on stannis's murders of renly and courtney penrose obviously jeff thinks they're totally justified and that they <laughs> he would have done it too and it tends to be more on the side of it makes Stannis a monster to do it. I tend to agree with um, Emmett on that one, but still a very good discussion and worth hearing about. Yeah, I think that's true that Davos is the moral compass. Oh, he's close to it. He's what is he, the, hot, the half-rotten onion. He has his good parts, he has his bad parts, but not actively evil. Although he does help make some evil things happen, so you know that's one way to think about it. He is unusual, though, in that he is essentially a, uh, a peasant POV. You don't 
there aren't too many of those. He's been raised to a lordship, but he wasn't. Okay, so he was made a lord by Stannis, but he was not raised that way. So his POV is very different from other characters. Oh, thanks for coming, more. Enjoy your lunch. Thank you again for the super chat. Always appreciate it. So let's talk about like, what the hell are these things? <laughs> what what are they? How do they work? As usual, we're going to go ahead and do a Joe Magician deep dives onto magic that probably does not have the answers you're looking for, but we're going to try it anyway. We're going to look logically at what's what they do and what characters say about them and see if we can sort of come up with a working theory of shadow babies, I guess. Also, by the way, make sure you slam the like button. Remember, you get to 150 likes. Cool hats going on. Also, helps people find the stream. Actually, I don't think that part got uh, picked up because of the way my mic is, so I don't think I can whisper into it anymore. Oh, no. Let's see here. Can I whisper? Apparently, it's not getting picked up much. Okay. <laughs> do we know for sure it was staked out, baby? It's in Moritel. <laughs> yeah, yeah Sanus needs to do a paternity test on the shadow babies. I don't think it's mine. Although, uh, we're about to get it to the point where, yes, we... He, it is, it is him. He, anyway, so what are these shadow assassins? The two we've seen as, they seem to be creatures of shadow and smoke that can seemingly pass through anything like a ghost. They can also apparently hop across water like it's not there. So that's kind of strange. But then they're also substantial enough that they can literally pick a man up and heave him off a tower and then also create a shadow sword of some kinds that will go through steel like it's they call it cheesecloth like how can what the hell are these things where they can do both things and there's also a very interesting note here that melisandra needs davos to row her into storm's end because she notes that her shadow binding will not penetrate the walls of storm's end from the outside she needs to be inside of them um, saying that there are magical wards essentially around the castle that makes it impossible for the shadow magic to go through. That's the whole point of Davos rowing her. She, they get underneath the outer walls, at which point the magic will work. So that's something also interesting that these are, that even though it seems like shadow magic comes from long away from Hashai, apparently whatever children of the foresty wards were built into storm's end thousands of years ago they work against the shadow babies so they have some sort of interaction there it's not something separate it fits into the rest of george's magical understanding i guess but it is they are very very strange they move almost impossibly fast but they aren't there at all they can barely be seen catelyn only sees its stannis because I guess the shadow pauses behind him or thinking about it before going and just offing Renly. And then we get the detail that, yes, they do have the face of Stannis Baratheon, which Davos also notes, which is if you kind of just think about it before you. Besides the fact that you know that it's Stannis, that Davos and Catelyn both identify the, sh the shadow as Stannis. Why is it him? The, the, ba the shadow baby, the shadow assassin is being born from Melisandre. Why doesn't it look like her? Why isn't it her face that's out there or no one's at all? Why is this like not like a shadow demon or some sort of otherworldly, other dimensional being that's being called into existence? Why is it Stannis in particular? 
if I were writing this, if I was making up Shadow Babies, I would probably just use Melisandre's face or just a generic one. The idea that it's Stannis tells you something very important about what they're doing. Yeah, and, and yet it is Stannis' face. In the show, that makes more explicit what's going on here, that Stannis and Melisandre are for sure having sex, and that somehow, while having sex, Melisandre, like, draws energy off of him? I'm not really sure. It's unclear in the show, it's unclear in the books what exactly the mechanic is here, but something about them sleeping together creates the shadow baby. I mean, the fact that she literally births it like a child also gets you to that point. You're supposed to understand that this is a product of sex. Hey, Sanrixian. Oh, no problem at all. We're having a great time with the shadow babies. Adam Rush says, thank you, my lord. Don't call me your lord. <laughs> having extremely terrible past few days in this uh, live brought a smile to my face. Hey, well, I'm glad we're, we're doing something good for you. Even though it's a horrifying, terrible topic of murder and shadow and demons and all sorts of weird things, we're going to have some fun. Uh, hope it gets better for you, buddy. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good call from uh, Christian Wickman. When he gave her his seed, he gave her his soul. Yeah, that's probably what you're supposed to understand about what's happening here. That there's some sort of life essence things. We'll get into that a little bit more, but uh, that's further down my outline. But yes, great point. There's a thing that tells you for sure that this is not a... This is not like a golem or of stance this isn't a separate creature that happens to look like him this is in fact stannis baratheon as the shadow why because he remembers doing it he remembers killing renly and courtney in his in his sleep the quote here is for a long time the king did not speak then very softly he said i dream of it sometimes of renly's dying a green tent candles a woman screaming and blood stannis looked down in his hands I was still abed when he died. Your Devon will tell you. He tried to wake me. Dawn was nine. My lords were waiting, fretting. I should have been a horse. Armored. I knew Renly would attack at the break of day. Devon says, I thrashed and cried out. But what does it matter? It was a dream. I was in my tent when Renly died. When I woke, my hands were clean. And here we also have the perspective from Devon, who's telling Davos about it. He sought the audience... He saw an audience with an hour of his arrival only be told that the king was occupied. The king was often occupied, Davos learned from his son Devon, one of the royal squires. Now that Sans Baratheon had come into power, the lordlings buzzed about him like flies around a corpse. Stannis is like a corpse. He looks half a corpse too, years older than when I left Dragonstone. Devon said the king scarcely slept of late. Since Lord Renly died, he's been troubled by terrible nightmares. The boy confided to his father. Maester's potions do not touch them. Only the Lady Melisandre can soothe them to sleep. There's a fun aside here from Davos. Afterwards, he essentially goes like, Oh, I wonder how Melisandre is getting him to sleep. Wink, 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 wink. So what this is telling us is Melisandre birthed the shadow itself, but she's not in control of it. It's not Melisandre's shadow. It's Stannis's. Rather than being like some sort of ethereal being stolen from another dimension that's bound to her like a warlock, she has instead found a way to free Stannis's shadow or his mind from his body and allow it to act in the world. Because if you think about it, the things that Stannis's shadow can do are essentially the things you can do in a dream. 
where it has superhuman strength. It can cut through anything. It can run across water. It can run through walls, basically, and move at incredible speeds. These are the things that happen when you're in a dream. The, your mind wants something to happen, and it does. I, I was thinking about this while I was writing, and it seems to me almost something like Peter Pan. If you guys remember at the beginning of um, well, that play and then eventually movie, that Peter and his shadow fight in, a, in sort of a disagreement with each other that they can be separate. And it's all a bit confusing, but they are the same person. And I wonder if that's kind of what George was getting at here, because I've read a lot of his other books and a lot of his other short stories, and there is nowhere else that he writes about this idea of a shadow assassin that I've seen. Nothing like where somebody goes to sleep and then a personification of them comes to life and goes out and attack things. This is a brand new thing for him. But Doris James says, in other words, because he wasn't physically present in Renly's tent or on the battlements of Storm's End, he cannot be said to be responsible for Renly or Courtney's death. That is what Stannis believes, that he doesn't understand what happened, but he does remember it happening. He was in the tent. He has the details correct. Everything he said in his dream is what actually happened, we saw from Catelyn's POV. Not a hallucination, he actually was there. And it's a confusing thing to try and put your finger on, but I think that's kind of what's going on. That the Shadowbinder's power is not the ability to create like explicitly shadow demons. They somehow have the ability to to separate the mind from the body and allow it to act like it wouldn't like it does in a dream. Because you can imagine that Stannis, you can from his dream, he was worried about Renly. He was worried about the battle coming up and how it'd be so much easier if Renly was dead. And then Melisandre bursts the shadow baby, and what happens? Stannis goes and acts out the subconscious or conscious desires of himself. That's basically what happens. It's it's Stannis's primal desires being acted out like he would in a dream. Like this happens all the time. People do things in dreams that they would never do in real life. Stannis would probably be unwilling or unable to kill Renly personally with his hand. He would consider himself a key, a kinslayer. But it's totally normal for dreams for that kind of thing to happen and for people to brush it off as nothing because it wasn't real. Well, it was real this time. Yeah, I think it's something like an astral projection or something like that. I don't know about other series that have this. I'm sure George did not come up with this whole cloth. Guessing he got it from somewhere else, but I don't know the reference. But it's definitely not something that exists elsewhere in his fiction, as far as I know. So if you want to understand it that way, when you're talking about <laughs> shadow binding, there it's that's kind of what it is. It's the ability to create like a dream version of your of somebody, somebody else. Maybe you can do it for yourself, but Melisandre explicitly uses Stannis in order to create. <laughs> I don't even know. A waking nightmare of them, basically. A walking nightmare. That's a good call, Daisy. Lucky to have an orgy dream. Yeah. Kind of taking a risk there. Like, what if Stannis decided and said he wanted to dream about um, having a great time with Robert? High-fiving and going hunting and all the things he wanted from his older brother he never got. But I think that's kind of what's going on there. Barris Aurelius says, does Stannis realize he actually killed Renly, though? Or does he just think it's Melisandre doing the work? Initially, he doesn't think he did it. 
that he it was just a dream that was from the quote that was essentially there's no blood on my hands i couldn't have done it later though in the books when he starts talking about renly's peach he essentially comes to the conclusion that yes i did it even though i don't understand how it worked he more or less comes to the realization that yes he did kill his brother even if he really doesn't understand shadow binding yeah it's a good call shadow binding is deliberately shadowy george is leaving it that way not gonna tell us exactly how it works this is generally how he works with most of his fantasy and magical elements he just sort of wants it to happen and therefore that's as far as he wants you to understand it but i think the fact that so many people are confused about shadow binding shows that maybe he needs to put a little more effort in the future books if he's going to use them again for like what the hell these things are because they really come out of nowhere did melisandre only know the shadow baby do because she saw stannis's shadow kill renly in the flames it's quite possible it was a self-fulfilling uh prophecy but also they talked about it ahead of time that melisandre told stannis that she would essentially take care of it he doesn't know how she did that he just knows that renly died but it's essentially he takes somebody and i you well Let's go into this a little bit more. There's a little more detail I haven't talked about yet. This gets sort of gets into what exactly is a shadow binder like Melisandre. So you look at her, she has two distinct kinds of powers within her. She has the fire of R'hllor, whatever that is, which means that she can see the future in the flames. She, for some reason, doesn't need to eat or sleep, kind of like a fire white, and that maybe she can explode warged animals. She takes credit for that when Aurel's eagle explodes over the wall. It's unclear if she actually did that, but she says she did, so who knows. But the other side of this is the shadow binding, and it's supposedly a skill she learned from the uh, sorcerers from Ashai. We know very, very little about the shadow binders of Ashai. The passages in the World of Ice and Fire and A Song of Ice and Fire proper are scant on what they can do. They tend to keep it that way. That's the whole point of them. They're not trying to advertise exactly what they can do. Basically, the only info we have on them is that they are completely terrifying and that they always wear these kind of lacquered masks to disguise their identity. The other shadow, there's one other shadow binder that we definitely meet within A Song of Ice and Fire, and that is Quaith. But as far as we know, she doesn't do any shadow binding herself. There's no I have never heard anybody speculate about Shad Babies being unleashed over an Essos. Maybe it's something the whole fandom has missed and Quaith has done it too, but I've never seen it. Is there any magic more explained? Even the tree stuff makes no sense if you think about it. No. Most of the magic is explained only in terms of function rather than what's the right word for it? The mechanics. The mechanics are rarely, under, are rarely explained by George. It's really just function. What do they do? That's all he really wants. <laughs> He doesn't want his books to essentially be like five chapters where he just where he goes into like exactly how your mind interacts with a glass candle and what's going on inside the crystal. He just says glass candle lets you see far and see into dreams. It's like, oh, OK, I guess that's how it works. Oh, five dollars from the happy masquerader. Thank you so much. Why else would Orel's ego had exploded if it not a melt? Nobody's nobody's sure it may be because it was over the wall or something, something else. Nobody knows. It's one of those weird things that comes out of nowhere and then isn't explained. The only thing we have is that Mel takes credit for it. It would be weird if Aurel didn't know that he couldn't essentially fly over the wall without exploding the eagle, but oh, it's not, it's not Aurel that does it. It's Vermeer Six Skins using his eagle. I'm sorry. I got that part wrong. 
it is Orel's eagle, but it's Veramir doing it. It'd be weird if Veramir wasn't aware that he couldn't make a, a bird fly over a wall before he did it. Yeah, th- that's a good point, Dornish Dame. It's magic. It isn't supposed to make sense. Some authors do try to make it make sense. George isn't one of them. He rarely, if ever, goes beyond function or what they can do. Notab- notably, although for these examples, is that Melisandre is an, another exception to the rules. She does not wear a lacquered mask, although she's for certain almost for certain wears a glamour with her ruby and she does not have visible tattoos of the red temple like many other red priests do especially those i think from her temple and that she's a shadow binder and a red priest at the same time extremely odd it's usually i think she's the only character that's both or even tries to bridge magical gaps so in a sense melisandre as a character is the shadow and the flame themselves the light and the dark at the same time she is the fire and also the shadow being cast that that's essentially how her character is supposed to be understood she's light and dark in one the other thing we know about shadow binders is that they are known to basically only be in a shy or that's where they're trained or going out into the world being hired essentially as like court magicians that kind of thing they don't have the same kind of reputation as like the faceless men or the sorrowful men i'm not sure that people are aware that they can be used as assassins I mean, there's a lot of fear about them, but it's not fear that like they're going to in particular pop into into a port and then birth a baby and then run away after killing somebody. That's not really what's known about them. But the fear of them is definitely a real thing. For instance, they're the only people in a shy that are brave enough to go upriver t- into the shadow and go anywhere near the, um, the city of Stigai. So. They're supposed to be very strange and on another level. Scandal blaze it. Yeah, sure. Oh, hey, Emma. Good to see you. Smith. Smith crazy. If one day we get like 500 likes, we get uncomfortable lacquered mask part of the podcast. No, I'm not going to do. I I only have these two things because one of them was a Halloween costume. The other one was just because like I wanted a wizard hat. I'm not. I'm not going into like super prop guy. That's. It's not a thing. The binding artifact might explain Quaith's mask. It's unclear what the masks do because Melisandre doesn't have one. So if they're necessary, why doesn't she wear one? Don't really know. So the only explanation we really get about what's going on, this is from Melisandre herself. It's noted that after the shadow babies are used, that after Melisandre uses Stannis to kill Renling and Courtney Penrose, that Stannis looks a lot older and he looks very gaunt that he looks like half a corpse the line from earlier was he looks half a corpse years older than when i left dragonstone so stannis is essentially aged like five to ten years overnight basically from when davos last saw stannis and the assumption here is that this is because of the shadow baby and melisandre makes a little bit more clear when they're on their boat trip to go kill courtney penrose this is what she says is the brave Sir Onion so frightened of a passing shadow? Take heart then. Shadows only live when given birth by light. The king's fire, the king's fires burn so low, I dare not draw off any more, make another sun. It might well kill him. Melisandre moved closer. With another man, though, a man whose flames still burn hot and high. If you truly wish to serve your king's cause, come to my chamber one night. I could give you pleasure such as you've never known, and if your life fire, I could make. Davos essentially goes like a monster, basically. So this is as close to his an explanation of shadow binding as we're ever going to get. 
but it's essentially the idea that when Melisandre creates these shadow assassins, she draws life fire from the person, and then she uses the life fire to create the shadows, which are a version, which are essentially that person's consciousness or their dream version of themselves made real, made into a thing that can run around in the world. For instance, she says here that the king's fire burns so low, I dare not draw off any more to make another son. So after two shadow babies that only lasted for probably all of 30 minutes total, if that, Melisandre thinks if she tries again with Stannis, she's going to kill him. Yeah, she. I know Melisandre does wear a, a form of a mask, but I mean, if you're talking about like a physical lacquered mask, like if that is important to being a shadow binder, then it, Melisandre doesn't make sense. She doesn't wear one. So it can't just be that. It has to be something else. So that's kind of what's going on here. The idea, I'm not quite sure what George means by a life fire is this supposed to mean like a person has like their life force or how much life they have left as melisandre essentially taken like five to ten years literally off stannis's life as he aged is that what's going on here and what would it look like if she went through with it would he turn into an old man are we talking like indiana jones and the um last crusade when what's his name the the doctor guy drinks from the wrong cup and turns into a corpse. Is that what's what's going to happen here? Really, I don't know what to make of life fire. It sort of seems like maybe like a person has like a mana pool or something. Like if we're talking RPGs, actually, I don't know if there's mana pools in the Hades game that Aaron was playing, but a lot of games have the sort of idea that you have a certain amount of magic you can use and then you're sort of tapped out for a bit. Don't really know. Don't really know what George is getting at here. Is it potential life? Is this how many years you have left? Is it like a measure of like a Jedi way of like how powerful, how powerful willed you are or something like that? I don't know. But Melisandre has this idea that if you lose it, you die and that it's possible to, be, to convert that into into a shadow assassin, I guess. This sort of seems to track with the idea of Beric Dondarrion and Catelyn Stark, although it's unclear why Thoros of Mirror would have enough life fire in him to bring another person back from the dead. Surely he needs his own life fire, but we do see after he brings back Beric seven times, he looks much older and he looks like he's being drained of sort of. So maybe that's the idea here that George is trying to get at. That every character, if your life fire gets too low, whatever that means, you end up dying, and that to use this kind of sorcery, any kind of sorcery, you have to use some of it. I guess that would be the idea. Are they soul rings, yeah. <laughs> They're like the moxen from Magic the Gathering. You need to uh, you need to tap all your lands, and then if you have five black five black mana and two red mana, then you can activate your artifact, your lacquered mask artifact, and create a shadow assassin. I guess that's the explanation. That's more or less what's going on here. Stannis is out of chakra. Yeah, this is Naruto. This is now Naruto. 50 PLN from Kraken Queen. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. In pop culture, ghosts linger on on last unfinished task before death. Even Barrack and Lady Stoneheart act like ghosts. That's true. They're more like, yeah, like poltergeists. 
Maybe Stannis loses part of himself like Beric and sets intention for the Shadow Baby as his ghost. Perhaps. And, and it's this also opens the the question, basically, like how these Shadow Babies only last for minutes, basically. That it runs from Stannis' camp to Renly's camp, kills him, and then disappears. And the same thing for Courtney Penrose. They start underneath Storm's End. It's birthed. It runs all the way through the castle, quickly grabs Courtney, throws him over the edge, and then disappears. What if you wanted to make one that lasted longer? How would that work? Would that kill the person? How long could they possibly last? And if you did, if you killed somebody, essentially by drawing them off into drawing off their Nightfire's total, what, what would that create in the end? Not really clear. There is sort of the idea that from Vermeer Sixkin's from his chapter that after he dies and he's sort of floating out there in above the trees and stuff like that that's possible for a person in a song of ice and fire to exist as essentially a disembodied consciousness so maybe that that would be something like that but i think it's i think you're supposed to understand that melisandre essentially had sex with stannis grew his life fire and then essentially like a pry bar Took his consciousness, popped out of his body, let it go kill somebody, and then put it back. That would be probably the simplest explanation of what they actually are. Oh, <laughs> hey, Amanda, good timing, because you know what? We're talking about 30-foot shadow baby today. <laughs> We're going to get to that one today. This was actually, this stream was Amanda's idea. He's been, well, we'll talk about it later. But yeah, maybe something like Poltergeist. I'm not really, that. that's the best I got. That If you want to look at what they are they're like a shadow version of somebody's mind they're they're like the dream version of somebody's subconscious where you can do anything in a dream so if you free the mind i guess from the body then as a shadow thing it could do the same thing there are limited very limited similarities to george's other works in that much of the time when he writes about magic and impossible things in his other stories they're almost always psychics or they're psychers he calls them Teakers, telekinetics, I guess, as he calls them, when he thinks in terms of what is the most powerful thing you can do with magic or some sci-fi thing, almost all the time it is psychic abilities. He thinks that mental, magical abilities are the most powerful thing you can do. It's probably maybe comes from his experience with like Marvel comics and DC comics, where characters who have control over mind are pretty much the most powerful things out there and almost all the powers of even if you think about like mutants if you think about like jean gray her powers of the phoenix are basically her imagination running loose that's basically what she can do preston's theories no that's that's just you just read his books and pretty much every single one of his stories where somebody can do something unbelievable it's psychic powers that's not really a theory that's just that's just reading them Anybody can get that. Even wild cards, his self-insert, the great and powerful turtle, is basically just a psychic. Or telekinetic. He has the ability to move things with his mind. That's what George loved. That's what he writes. He writes it over and over and over again. So the idea of, in some stories, he has characters blowing up heads, essentially. Talk about Team Brain Explosion. There is a book, there is a story, Night Flyers, where uh, a psychic character blows up another character's brain with their mind you also have the ability to move corpses basically like puppets um the great and powerful turtle he's called that because he's inside a vw bug that he that he mer merges into a 
uses his mind to crush it into a shell, basically. So he's able to move that in himself up and around. Time travel comes into it. Skin changing is basically just psychic powers. They all center around this idea. Almost in almost all of George's magic is psychic in nature, that he believes the mind is the most powerful thing. Yep, this was Amanda's idea from the she posted in the Slack and I took it seriously for once. I didn't just laugh it off. We're doing this. So uh, let's see here. We're about halfway through. Uh, make sure you guys, if you haven't yet, slam the like button, hit the subscribe button, do all the things. If you're enjoying what we're talking about, we're about to get into weird shit now. We're about to get into speculation. This is like base level. Like what are they and what have they done that we know about? So where else in Westeros and the Song of Ice and Fire, Fire and Blood, World of Ice and Fire, where may there have been shadow babies that are unaccounted for? Ones that George essentially created the pattern for you with Courtney Pennose and Renly Baratheon and then put them out, out elsewhere without the proof of the characters or the writers know. So the first one, as I was talking about with uh, Amanda or Crowfood's daughter, Disputed Lands. God, you have so many names. She's been asking me to talk about this for quite a while now. I'm guessing she's going to make a video out of it at some point. Every time I ask her for ideas or I do like, hey, what do you guys want to do a stream on? She says this 30 foot tall shadow baby <laughs> without about without a doubt. Every single time it is 30 foot tall shadow baby. So let's talk about this 30 foot tall shadow baby. This comes from Fire and Blood. It's during the storming of the dragon pit in the Dance of the Dragons. The shepherd and probably Lara Strong, as we talked about during the Lara stream, successfully riled up the crowd of King's Landing into a deadly mob who are ready to kill and essentially just said, you know what you should do? You should go ahead and kill all the dragons. Go into the dragon pit and slay them. Because they're all essentially, if you are unaware, because this isn't a thing in the main books, the dragon pit was essentially built as like a dragon barn. It was a giant, giant dome. They had essentially artificial caves built into the sides where the dragons were chained up and that's where they lived. They were fed by the dragon keepers. If a Targaryen or a Valarian, I guess, or a Baratheon wanted to go ride a dragon, they said it was essentially like a parking garage for them. Side effect of this is it made them much, uh, much smaller than they normally would be. Dragons continue to get big as the more they eat. This is also borne out with Daenerys and her dragons that Drogon is much bigger than uh, Rhaegal and Viserion because he's been allowed to go out and hunt whenever he wants to. So a lot of the dragons in the dragon pit are actually not that big. A few of them are like Cyrax and a few others, but they're largely, well, maybe the wrong word for it. They're a lot smaller than like Balerion the Black Dread or Vagar or anything like that. These are smaller. These are things that like a bunch of peasants with pitchforks and sticks can deal with, not the giant ones. So. The Shepherd and Laris probably, as a rebellion against Rhaenyra, convinces this giant crowd that the dragons are evil, that they are antithetical, basically, to the faith of the Seven. Therefore, get in there, everybody. Oh, sorry about that. Get in there. Everybody get in there and kill dragons. We're going to bring them down. We're going to remove dragons from Westeros. Unfortunately, these are basically all... The Black's dragons on the side of the Dance of the Dragons. The greens are largely spared from this fate. And this was basically the tactical advantage that Rhaenyra's side had over Aegon's, that they had way more dragons. After the storming of the dragon pit, most of them are dead, and the balance of power, dragon-wise, is much more even afterwards. 
that's why it's pretty clear it was Lara Strong was behind this because it so clearly helps out the Greens. I think uh, Daniel Basich is on delay, but yes, Mel could be pulling in Stannis like a soul when they make a shadow baby and it could be literally tearing his soul. Yeah, basically, it's killing him to do it. But it is him. It is Stannis. It's his consciousness. So most of the dragon pit dialogue and the actions are pretty normal. It's a bunch of people with sticks and poles and pitchforks and shovels and shit. And they're essentially trying to kill the dragons. A bunch of them die because obviously the dragons fight back. The ceiling collapses, I think, at one point and it's a bunch of the crowd. But there's one moment. One very strange moment, the one that Amanda has been trying to get me to talk about for forever. And this is what happens. As others fled, the story went, the one-handed prophet stood fearless and alone against the ravening beast, calling on, calling on the seven for sucker, sucker? I don't know what that word means. Till the warrior himself took form 30 feet tall. In his hand was a black blade made a smoke that turned to steel as he swung it, clawing the head of Cyrax from her body. And so the tale was told, even Septon Eustace, in his account of the dark days, and so the singer sang, sang for many years afterwards. This is, this is the 30-foot-tall shadow baby. It certainly is evocative of what we've seen from Stannis' shadow babies, that there's a giant figure of sorts that is doing impossible things like if you remember the when i was reading the davos thing earlier it literally runs across the water and it hurls a man from over its head off a tower a full-grown man like courtney penrose so we also get the black blade made of smoke that turns the steel as he swung it that's also evocative of renly baratheon's death where stannis used a shadow sword to essentially cut straight through steel like it wasn't there which is really hard to do. That seems to be a thing about these shadow babies that they can sort of do whatever they want. They're not there, but they are there and they have powers that nobody else does. So what's going on here? Obviously, the, the way you're supposed to read this is that this is a hyped up dramatization of what happened. The fact that the shepherd is essentially a magical figure that's essentially what he was claiming that he hears like the faith he hears the seven that he's doing their will that he, he calls himself a prophet he hears the voice of the gods and so that when he called for their help the warrior himself showed up and cut off a dragon's head it's a very very powerful image especially if you're somebody that's a fan of the faith of the seven this is essentially what they've been trying to do for years the idea that the seven themselves would kill the dragons, that they are antithetical to each other. Jaehaerys and his exceptionalism stuff ended up, is, was, and continues to be a problem for the faith. That they think that the dragons and Targaryens are immoral, but they have to put up with them because they could burn down Old Town and kill everybody, kind of like Maegor did. Well, he didn't burn down Old Town, but he did kill a lot of people, and so did Aegon and Rhaenys and Visenya. So... This could definitely just be essentially Faith of the Seven propaganda that's being made, that this is a supposed to be a, what's the right word for it? It's essentially like a movie poster version of what happened, that the Faith came down with the warrior and he sliced off their heads. But like Amanda is very excitedly <laughs> talking about, and she's said to me many times, 
there's no way around it. This does look like just a giant shadow assassin. This looks like a shadow baby. It certainly has the characteristics of one that it has the ability to cut off a dragon's head, that it's made of smoke and that it does impossible things. Exactly what the shadow babies do. So the question becomes, if this is actually a shadow baby, whose shadow is it and who cast it? Hang on a second. As written, George is clearly offering you the opportunity as a reader to try and figure out if this is real. He's aware that you've probably read A Clash of Kings, that you've seen the shadow baby work, that you've seen Renly's death, that you've seen Melisandre birth one and then go off and kill Courtney Penrose. So this is not an accident. This is not like a close reading of something that's completely out of context. He wants you to think of the shadow babies here. Now, is he, is he just pulling your chain or is he doing something real with it? In order for this to be a shadow baby, you'd have to have a shadow binder, somebody that could actually create it. If you're using the, the example Melisandre, which is the example we have, there has to be a shadow binder in King's Landing at the time. I forget if Mysario the White Worm is alive at this point. A second, let me check this out. If you're looking for somebody in the Dance of the Dragons that would be within King's Landing who possibly could do this while well, the Lyseni Mysaria is certainly a possibility to hear. Dragon Pit. So she died after, during, after these riots, I believe. No, a second. So she's in, Mysaria the White Worm is in King's Landing during these riots. And it's after the storming of the Dragon Pit and when Perkin the Flea and Tristane Truefire and the Moon of the Three Kings happens that Mysari is actually killed. She essentially is forced to take a walk of penance like Cersei and ends up killing her. So if you're looking for a named character in King's Landing who could, could maybe be a shadow binder and be able to do this, it's possible that Mysaria could have pulled this off. But that's quite a leap. We don't know that much about Mysaria. We don't know that she's a shadow binder, but generally... George only makes it so that people that come from Essos are the ones who are Shadowbinders. So there's a really limited list of characters that could be it within King's Landing at that time. Also, it's shown from Melisandre's example that she probably has to be pretty close by to make this happen. I mean, she literally has to go under the walls of Storm's End to create the Shadow Assassin. She's only, I don't know, probably like a half mile away from Renly when she when she uses Stannis to kill him. There's Durham, right? Any shadowbinder guys? I don't think there are any male shadowbinders. I haven't seen any. It doesn't mean there aren't, though. It'd be confusing, though, considering Melisandre's method is to give birth to them. I don't think you want to think about how a male shadowbinder would be creating them. That could get grisly real fast. So, if you're looking for who would have created this and is in King's Landing at the time, Mysaria's top of the list. There's also a possibility. We're going to talk about another character later who may have been involved, but definitely wasn't in King's Landing, and that's Alice Rivers. There's certainly a hint that she may have these kind of powers, but she's not there. So it'll also be unclear why she would do it. Whereas Mysaria, but Mysaria doesn't even make sense because she's on the side of the Blacks. So why would she help them kill the dragons? The dragons are the, the power of her lover, Daemon and Rhaenyra. So it, do, it doesn't. It doesn't track. Why would you kill them from her position? Yeah, it, it's tough to say. If this is a real shadow baby, I'm sure Amanda has a much better 
idea for this. I'm guessing there's a video coming for a character that might be responsible, but you need to find the shadow binder and then whose shadow this is. Who looks like the warrior themselves? Who is a giant person that has a problem with the dragons that would want to kill them? Especially because I believe Cyrax, hang on a second, isn't that? That's Rhaenyra's dragon. So this is Rhaenyra's dragon in particular being killed by somebody who is looking like the warrior themselves, 40, 30 feet tall with a giant sword that has a problem with Cyrax and Rhaenyra in particular. If it's not, so that's a bit of a puzzle. I don't have an answer for that, but Amanda has been asking me to talk about it. So here we go. That's what's missing. You need the shadow binder and you need the person casting the shadow, but you can narrow it down. You can narrow down your, essentially your search radius. Somebody that could be a shadow binder is in King's Landing and somebody that has a real problem with Rhaenyra. You get those three, you're right on the way to figuring it out. But I, I don't really have an idea. Again, Mysaria doesn't really work as a motivation. I don't know why she would help kill the dragons, why she would be on board with this. But I'd be interested to hear if any of you actually put it in the comments, if you would, or put it in the chat. Who's your guess? Who do you think in Fire and Blood casted this shadow bind, this shadow? And whose shadow is it? Certainly the character who would have the most motivation to do this would be Aemon One-Eye with Alice Rivers. But that's quite a ways away. They would probably be in the Riverlands at this point. I'm not even sure if they're a couple at this point. So someone on the greens is most likely. Ooh, high towers. Ah, I'm glad you guys brought up the high towers. Because we're going to go ahead and get here to the second possible secret shadow binder in fire and blood or shadow assassin and that is of course of septon moon you guys have been talking about in the chat you got ahead of me you guys are clever i see what you're doing so if you don't remember septon moon is <laughs> he's like barely a septon he's essentially a he's an anti targaryen septon who essentially has taken up the position that he thinks the dragons are evil, that he thinks the Targaryens themselves are immoral, and that it's their duty was to essentially oppose them. That, and he's essentially, he forms a little army around himself outside of Old Town, where they're protesting the idea that the Faith is about, is about to strike a bargain, more or less, with Jaehaerys and Alysanne. Because they, they, he was trying to get his exceptionalism thing pushed through, where the idea is that the Targaryens, in, in Jaehaerys' arguments, are not, are basically not human. They are something else. So therefore, and they also, they're not and also, they don't follow the Faith of Seven, therefore, they should not be bound by them. Septon Moon is the leader of essentially the, the opposition to this outside of the high tower in old town itself this is where it's all happening they have a big council there's a lot of arguments people die suddenly but septon moon is the big death because he ends up being um a real big thorn in the side of jaharis uh, and the high towers and the faith and the maesters because they don't want old town burned to the ground by vermax and ivermathor and Silverwing. And that's essentially what Jaehaerys and Alysanne have been threatening at this point. You guys make an exception or we're going to burn the city to the ground and kill all of you and we're going to do it anyway. Moon's standing in the way. He's essentially a cult leader. He, but it's, it's a very strange cult. It's more like from Greek mythology, like 
a cult to Dionysus or Bacchus. There's a lot of sex going on. There's a lot of wine drinking. They're they're doing very strange things for people that are supposedly following the faith of the seven. At this point, it just kind of seems like Moon was just gathering a popular movement around himself. And it didn't really have anything to do with with opposing the Targaryens. That was just the the popular movement that he was seizing on to try and gain power. Septon, Septon Moon's a shithead, basically. He's a shithead grifter who's trying to use this opportunity to gain power for himself. But he ends up being a real problem because he actually has quite a small army outside of Old Town. And he's particularly preventing Jaehaerys and Alysanne and the rest of... They're trying to go to Old Town to essentially be... I think they're going to be blessed with the holy oils and they want to be... They're going to be... They're going to have their coronation with the faith, especially after a troublesome High Septon dies, basically. It's not a nice cult. It's a bad cult. Most cults are bad. And essentially, Old Town and the faith and the Maesters have essentially come to an agreement with Jaehaerys that they're on board. They're going to do this, but they're going to go through with the exceptionalism. Everything's going to be okay, but Moon's not going to let them because he's got his little kingdom outside of Old Town. So what happens here, the quote is, well, Septon Moon dies. A short time passed, during which the men outside the tent heard only occasional gusts of laughter from Septon Moon inside. But then suddenly there was a groan and a woman's shriek, followed by a bellow of rage. Boy, does this sound like Renly Baratheon. The tent flap was thrown open and the woman burst out, half naked and barefoot, dashed and dashed away wide-eyed and terrified before any of the poor fellows could think to stop her. Septon Moon himself followed moments later, naked, roaring, and drenched in blood. He was holding his neck, and blood was leaking between his fingers and dripping down into his beard where his throat had been slit. So, this is extraordinarily evocative of Renly Baratheon's murder. You have, you have the gusts of wind on the tent. You have a, a sudden groan, a woman screaming, a bellow of rage. This all happened in Renly's murder, almost to the letter. The only difference here is that we don't have a POV inside the, inside the tent itself. We don't know what's going on in there, but if you remember Renly's murder, you can probably pretty clearly transpose that situation onto this. In Fire and Blood itself, this essentially, essentially what happens is the Maester Gildane tries to solve the murder by going through the suspects and who had the opportunity where they go like, well, maybe the woman did it or maybe one of the guards did it. Or maybe it was like, it's suggested. I forget if it's directly suggested, but Faceless Man is definitely an idea. Maybe the wine was poisoned. Was it like a, was this, was it an Agatha Christie situation where everybody was trying to kill Moon and then they all did it once. So nobody's at fault, but Shadow Assassins is not mentioned but the situation is nearly identical. And if you're looking for a connection to perhaps later with the 30-foot-tall shadow baby in the, uh, the dragon pit, well, it certainly serves the interest of the greens or the proto-greens in the high towers, basically, for Septon Moon to die. It helps them forge the alliance with Jaehaerys and Alysanne. It removes a popular figure from outside their castle that has essentially decided he's a... like. A, a weird king staging a a party where he's taking advantage of his followers, that kind of thing. So Shadow Assassin definitely does make sense. How would they have done it, though? That's another good question. This is the same problem with the Dragon Pit 
shadow assassin idea is you would need to you need to have a shadow binder and then you need to know who's be whose life fire is being drawn to create them in both situations if you wanted to just pinpoint the idea that both of them helped the high towers maybe that's enough maybe that can get you most of the way and said perhaps they imported a shadow binder into old town because old town's a giant port and boats would definitely be coming from Essos. And we know they're not only in a shy. That's where they're trained. That's where they're from. But they head out into the world. Melisandre obviously is in Westeros. Quaith is in Karth. And there's talk of them in Volantis. So it's not impossible that a Shadowbinder was in Old Town or the High Towers sent for one in order to take care of their Septon Moon problem. Or... If you want to be very conspiratorial, they brought a shadow binder to take care of Jaehaerys and Alysanne and then decided it was in their best interest to instead kill Moon. And then they changed the hit, basically. Oh, you guys are talking about Miri Mazdor. This, yeah, this, I didn't talk about this. I didn't put this in my outline, but th this is great stuff you guys are talking about. The idea that Amanda's saying that Rago looked like he'd been dead for years, that essentially all of his life fire had been used by Miri Mazdor to awaken Drogo. Um, that could be another example of it. I don't think Miri Mazdor is explicitly said to be a shadow binder, but there's definitely the idea that there are shadows within the tent, that you see them on the wall of it, and that there's dark magic going on. Ah, that one makes a good amount of sense. Yeah, maybe Reiko is, is the test case for when you draw too much life fire, what happens? Essentially, the person falls to pieces like, like they've been dead for years. That would make a lot of sense. But yeah, so I think it's, I think definitely you're supposed to wonder if this was a shadow baby, a secret shadow baby used on Septon Moon. And I find that honestly to be pretty persuasive. These scenarios are so close. It's <laughs> George is too good a writer and he's too good about writing scenarios that he wouldn't just accidentally write Renly's death again with Septon Moon. I would not be shocked by this. This is, I mean, a lot of people, there are definitely. So it even has the same aftermath that characters essentially try to figure out, well, if Brienne did it, why did she do it? Or how did she do it? Same thing with Courtney Penrose. Like, what? Well, suicide or did his men throw him off? I don't really know what happened. Same thing for Moon. So a shadow assassin coming from the high towers. I could believe it. It's also possible that they were coming from Jaehaerys and Alysanne. I believe <laughs> Jaehaerys is not quite as a conciliator as people believe that he's probably a much worse person and I wouldn't be shocked if he had moon killed but if you're trying to link these two the high towers is the uh, the connective tissue there both supposed shadow assassin or potential shadow assassin attacks absolutely benefit the high towers and the greens they weren't the greens at this point but it's the same faction so that that's my that's my take on septon moon I think that's of this possibilities top of the list of who else, where else in a song of ice and fire, you could find a uh, shadow baby. Maybe there's somebody in the high tower camp, but you could always just make the explanation that they hired one and they brought it by ship. They brought a shadow shadow binder in by ship, hired them and sent them out again before anybody knew the difference. Very possible. Uh, yes, there, it is true that the, the High Towers and the Citadel are definitely associated with dark magic. It is the Aramir the Twisted and the, the ban on necromancy 
the idea that Kyburn got thrown out. Marwin also has been to a shy and he knows about Shadowbinder. So there's definitely a sense that there are lingering evil things in Old Town, especially under the control of the High Towers. I mean, for their their symbol literally is a a giant tower with a huge flame at the top. What do flames cast? Shadows. So that could be a very simplistic, but perhaps a way to hint at it that yes, the high towers are behind this. Yeah, Jahari sucks. Alisane's all good. Alisane's pure and wonderful and was the greatest, the greatest monarch to come to power in Westeros, except for maybe Aegon V. Jaharis, not so much. Just like Melisandre says, the what's the quote here? Let me go back up and grab this one. Shadows only live when given birth by light. The king's fire burned. Oh, yeah. Melisandre essentially makes the case when she's talking to Davos that you need a powerful fire to cast a powerful shadow. So the high towers, literally their symbol is the most powerful fire in Westeros, the one on top of the high tower. Perhaps there's definitely weird shit going on there. Yes, boo the high towers. <laughs> Although if I had to be born into a, a Westerosi house, I would choose the high towers. Being an old town is definitely the way to go. You also have access to the Citadel. You're near the Arbor. You're relatively safe from everything. Like Old Town and the High Tower seems like the place to be born into if you're going to be born into any noble house. Yeah, and there's also the, the Blackstone Fortress on Battle Isle. There, there's all sorts of weird, dark things going on in, in Old Town. So that is my take on that one. So the last possibility of where there may be secret shadow assassins that are not explicitly told to us, and this is Alice Rivers. Uh, we talked about her earlier as a possibility of someone that could, could create a shadow assassin, and the reason is that born in a fire and blood, she sort of does. Or at least it seems like she does. So I talked earlier about brain explosion, the thing that happened in Nightfires. Well, brain explosion also happens in fire and blood. We talked about this with team brain explosion. Quote is, what happened next remains a matter of some dispute. Some say that Alice Rivers really merely raised a hand and Sir Regis began to scream and clutch his head until his skull burst apart, (laughs) spraying blood and brains. Others insist the widow's gesture was a signal at which a crossbowman on the battlements let a bolt fly that took Sir Regis through an eye. Mushroom, who was hundreds of leagues away, suggests that perhaps one man on the wall was skilled in the use of a sling. Soft lead balls, when slung with sufficient force, have been known to cause the sort of explosive effect that Grove's men saw attributed to sorcery. So, on its face, those are reasonable explanations that it was a sling or an arrow and that Sir Regis's death is dramatized. Unfortunately, this is the, ex- these, this is the exact setup for Renly's murder and Courtney's murder. That there is a magical explanation offered and then explained away because there is no magic and something plausible being put in its place. Instead of a shadow made of Stannis that stabs Renly through the throat, well, it was Brienne that did it and Catelyn Stark. Why? Well, Brienne was in love with him. Therefore, she turned on Renly when he was marrying Marjorie Tyrell. And why did Catelyn do it? Well, because Renly wasn't going to, was going to make Rob his enemy. So... Obviously, Catelyn had to kill Rob. Same thing here. Or for Sir Courtney. Yeah, he got thrown from a tower by a shadow baby, but the explanations are either suicide or his men killed him. George is doing the same setup. So you're supposed to wonder, can Alice Rivers actually cause somebody's brain to explode? This is definitely a thing in his other works. 
Night Flyers absolutely happens where one character, well, I guess character, makes another character's head explode through their magical psychic powers. That's a thing that happens. Actually, good call Amanda in the chat. She says it's like what Melisandre did to Aurel's eagle. Yeah, this seems very similar to that, where some sort of magical ability caused something to just basically go poof. So this isn't explicitly a shadow baby here. There's no hint that she used. Maybe a shadow assassin ran up behind one like, and it blew apart. Maybe it's like Eamon's, Eamon One-Eye's shadow baby. Although I think he's dead at this point. Yes, he's dead at this point. It's some Sandrixian, Team Eagle, and Brain Explosion. Man, that shirt's getting bigger all the time. Oh yeah, true, it happens in Scanners too. Good call. That's okay. There's so many brain explosions. So if you wanted, an expo if you wanted a dramatic explanation of Alice's powers, Night Flyers is not a bad comp. It's it, the same thing happens. I would doubt that one's a shadow baby, but it certainly is making the case that she's literally magical. And then there's the other example. So this is the one that seems much more like a shadow assassin or shadow baby than the brain explosion. Having been captured with a dozen others and having been forced to watch them die by torture one by one before being turned loose to deliver a warning. I'm to tell you what she said, he gasped, but you can't laugh. The widow put a curse on me. Any man of you laughs, I die. When Sir Damon assured him that nobody was going to laugh at him, the messenger said, Don't come again unless you mean to bend your knees, she said. Any man who comes near, the, near her walls will die. There's power in them stones, and the widows awoken it. Seven save us all, she has a dragon, I seen it. The name of the messenger is lost to us, along with the name of the men who laughed. But someone did, one of Lord Derry's men. The messenger looked at him, stricken, and then clutched at his throat and began to wheeze. Unable to draw breath, he was dead in moments. Supposedly, the imprints of a woman's fingers could be seen upon his skin, as if she had been in the room choking him. So, that absolutely seems like a shadow assassin. That seems like something that could totally be a thing that one of these shadow assassins would do run up behind somebody or be lurking in the shadows behind them and then reach out, grab their throat and kill them. We've, we've seen the other shadow assassins do remarkable feats of strength, do amazing things with their shadow swords. So the idea that one could run up and choke somebody to death, definitely in the realm of possibility. The question then becomes, when did Alice Rivers become shadow binder that is the question i brought up during the stream all about alice rivers this this actually if you answer this question with true alice rivers is a shadow binder and has the ability to do these things that just that just opens up like 15 other questions about like wait who is this woman exactly like the parallels between her and melisandre become very blatant at that point the idea that nobody sh nobody's sure how old Alice is. She looks a lot younger than she's supposed to be. For instance, there is a suggestion that she's kind of like old Nanish, that she's been around the strong household for many years, longer than anyone can remember. And they're not even sure which member of the house she's related to. Like, is, she's, is she Lionel's daughter? Is, he, is she his half-sister? But wait, wasn't she his nursemaid? Like, what, what's the time frame for her? for Alice Rivers. At this point, this is where the parallels just like explode and you're going like, okay, well, 
is she wearing glamour? Is she like Melisandre? <laughs> Some people, I think in that stream comments even made the case like, is she literally Melisandre? Or I don't know, is she the ghost of High Heart? Is she Maggie the Frog? Is she, I don't think Mary Mazdor has been suggested, but definitely the idea that there's more to Alice Rivers than meets the eye. If she is a shadow binder, if she is like Melisandre and she has the ability, you have to then obviously wonder how. Is this like an innate ability or did she learn it from somewhere? If she learned it from somewhere, that suggests she's been to a shy. Which how would a, a bastard girl from House Strong, not even the most particularly powerful house, end up going to a shy, learning to be a shadow binder and then come back to Westeros? At that point, like if that's true, like let's say, let's just make up a fan fiction here. Let's say Lionel Strong decided to send his half-sister or whatever she actually is, Alice Rivers to a shy to learn to become a shadow binder. Like, for instance, he's making Laris into a weapon. He's making Harwin into one too by making a member of the Gold Cloaks. Maybe he did the same for Alice. And then she comes back. But then the question is if that's true, then why was she left on her own with the rest of the Strongs in the Riverlands in Harrenhal? Wouldn't she be more used to Lionel Strong as a shadow binder next to him? She could be a pseudo master of whispers for him, carrying out assassinations and stuff like that. There, it, it's very confusing, and honestly, just as confusing as Melisandre. If you assume this is true about Alice Rivers, oh Quaith, there's another good one. Character with a mask, yeah. If you go down that way, and then you have to assume that for some reason the Alice Rivers character itself is fake, that there never was an Alice Rivers, that she was not a member of House Strong. That she was, in fact, somebody just pretending to be a member of their family for some reason. Or is she even a faceless man at that point? Is this a totally false identity? Very, very interesting questions. She definitely has the sense, a very similar description of her that you get from Melisandre, where she seems magical. She seems otherworldly in a way that George is fond of writing. It's... It's very strange to think about. Oh, Aaron asked, do we think she has to be physically in a shy to learn? Could she have been taught by another shadowbinder in Westeros? Are there other shadowbinders in Westeros? I don't know. I don't think we know of any at the time. As far as, as far as we know, you have to go to a shy to become a shadowbinder. That's what we know, but it doesn't mean it's always true. There's, as I said, there certainly are shadowbinders elsewhere in Essos. Maybe somebody... Taught, taught Alice somewhere else, but there's no there's no history here. We basically don't know anything about her. It's just sort of suggested. And honestly, this is something that people in the fandom have noticed for a while, ever since uh, Fire and Blood came out. That like, wow, there's a lot of weird similarities between Melisandre and Alice Rivers. So, which of them are true? Which one of them is false? I mean, it's it's hard to say. We're supposedly going to get more from Alice in Fire and Blood Part Two whenever it comes out because the book ends. I believe with her still in charge of Harrenhal and she holds it for quite a long time uh, before it gets taken back over. She's the witch queen of Harrenhal for years, I think, because of winter falls and it essentially protects her, which is a whole nother thing that the witch queen of Harrenhal is protected literally by winter. Very strange. University at Harrenhal, what like my like Ohio, what is it? Miami University of Ohio or whatever it's called. 
maybe there are shadow binders always in in old town maybe they hang out by the docks or something like that i don't know it's this is what i mean if this is true if that man was actually choked to death by a shadow baby it makes alice rivers an a exponentially more interesting character and it really widens george's use of these things because why put them in if you're just going to use them these two times what's the point like why do it well for one reason is that george <laughs> i think george going into a clash of kings got the sense perhaps from his readers that they were i mean the story starts off with objective fantasy you get the others show up at the end of a game of thrones daenerys's dragons are born again and so there is a fantasy element to it but most of the book is pretty far off the fantasy path it's most of the book is largely the same as this like what is it called by maurice drew the, the iron king oh this is a series what the name of the series accursed king's books like this is one of the inspirations for george where it's essentially a fictionalized version of french royalty and you could be not that far off if you read a game of thrones and most of a clash of kings and come away with well it's basically just a curse of kings with like a light fantasy aspect but the use of the shadow babies by melisandre definitely is supposed to kick you into the in the head to essentially remind you that no this is fantasy there, there is magic there's weird shit going on especially things that you're not going to expect because that's one of the things that's very strange about the shadow binding and the use of shadow babies in a clash of kings it's that there's no hint they're coming they just show up melisandre certainly talks about light and shadow a lot but i don't think you're supposed to read those those quotes and stuff like that and go like oh well obviously melisandre can cast shadow baby things that can essentially cut through steel with these shadow swords wherever the hell they are and oh yeah of course that means they have life fires and you draw them off to create these things like this all this all comes out of nowhere honestly melisandre in general comes out of nowhere even her ability to survive crescent's poison is painted almost explicitly in the text to be magical it has something to do with the ruby that's pulsing it's literally surprise shadow baby and I think that's kind of what George was doing, that he likes using these reminders for the audience that, no, you're not reading Accursed Kings. No, you're not reading just a historical drama, that this is all leading to fantasy, that there are it's going to get a lot weirder. That's essentially the point of the Veramir uh, prologue is to remind the reader that, like, hey, remember all that skin changing stuff? And like you were confused about it. Maybe you're a little intrigued. Here's a tutorial. Melisandre seems to be um, <laughs> seems to be a personification of that, and it actually ends up being the reason that George wrote her into a dream into a Dance with Dragons to have a POV, and she'll probably I think she's going to have like two or three into the Winds of Winter. That she's one of the he he likes to say she is one of the most misunderstood characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. That there's a lot more to learn about her, and that she seems to essentially be a walking embodiment. Of the fantasy genre and what is essentially a historical historical fiction that you if you pull those parts out you very easily this book those books could be non-fantasy really easy you just make a few changes make a few trims and it's just a story of warring nobles like something out of shakespeare but melisandre is sort of like the, the agent of chaos in the narrative yeah, it's a good call, Mally. It says, even the first time I read A Song of Ice and Fire, I was like, who the fuck is this Red Witch during Pre Crescent's POV? Exactly. She comes out of nowhere. Her powers come out of nowhere. 
that's like the thing with the exploding eagle up at the wall like did she really do that can she do that there's a lot of a lot of strangeness about melisandre and a lot of it is really wrapped up in this whole idea of shadow babies and shadow assassins i hope well let's go for if you guys have any questions anything i didn't read while i was while i was monologuing i guess anything you want to know any other stuff throw it at me now you can add me bros or we end the stream for a little while if you guys don't remember that i'm not going to be streaming for about a month i'll be back probably november 20th so before we do that before we say goodbye to each other for a little while yeah what do you got Actually, I want to see what Amanda thought of what I said about the shadow, shadow, 30 foot tall shadow baby. Oh, she's basically writing a video in the, in the comments here. She does this sometimes. Always watch Amanda when she's in a chat. She, her mind is always working in fascinating ways. Oh, she, she suggested Alice Rivers. Yep. Open question. So who knows if it's real, you, you got to uh, solve those problems, but you can solve them. You got yourself a good theory going. No, November 20th. So next weekend I'm off. October 16th. Yeah, I have a wedding in November. Oh, wait a second. Let me let me check the date. One second. Let me check my schedule. I want to make sure when I'm coming back. Maybe we'll be earlier than that. I posted this in the slash. When am I coming back? Oh, I'm coming back November 8th. So next stream will probably be November 13th, probably. After this one. This is gonna be it for a while. Yeah, we're gonna I'm gonna take a like I said, I have a bachelor party and a wedding coming up. Plus, I have to work some of those weekends, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take a break from streaming for a little bit. Recharge my life fires. Yeah, that's right. My life fire has been kind of low for a while. I know. I'm sorry, guys, but things have to be done. You are an oddball, Amanda. You have an unusual eye for detail, to say the least. But that's part of the reason why your videos end up being so good. Think differently. And you notice things that other people overlook. What are you going to do on Saturdays? You could rewatch these, I guess. There's a whole bunch of them. If you missed any, I guess it'd be a good time to catch up. 25 PLN from Kraken Queen. Great stream as always. Thank you for the quality content. Enjoy your time off and recharge. And so our watch begins. Yeah. Oh, thank you for the, the super chat and the uh, message. I do need time to recharge. That has been a problem. I actually want, I wasn't that prepared for this one today. I had to, I had to finish the Dying of the Light chapter seven last night. And I basically wrote all this this morning. So if it feels a little less unpolished, that's why I kind of had to rush it, which I don't like doing. But <laughs> eight more likes. That's right. <laughs> eight more likes for a George hat before we end the stream. Slam that like button, you guys. I know you can do it. Isabel Lamego, do you think Stannis' dream, do you think Stannis dreams about Courtney Penrose? That's a good question. I am not a Stannis scholar, so I don't know all of his lines by heart and he's actually one of those characters i don't tend to pay a lot of attention to because i don't like stannis but as far as i can remember most of his dreams are about renly and his peach and that's what he feels guilty about but i'd be curious if penrose does come up in his povs in a dance with dragons actually let's look that up right now we're gonna do a live check by the way if you guys don't know what a search of ice and fire is search of ice and fire.com it's all the books so it's a Game of Thrones to the Winds of Winter, plus all the Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, plus the World of Ice and Fire and the Rogue Prince and Princess and the Queen in a searchable archive. So it makes it really easy um, to look things up, at least by keyword. You kind of have to remember what you're looking for. 
one of the worst things about a search of ice and fire is it allows people to essentially keyword search and come up with really bizarre theories about like specific word choice because you can essentially just see them all in a row oh we got it look at you guys look at us wearing some turtle hats before we go doesn't look like there's any mention of courtney penrose in a dance of dragons or a feast for crows i'm not sure about see our storm of swords davos thinks about him i think that's i think the last time he comes up is actually in a storm of swords Courtney. Jamie and Davos is chapter of the last time he comes up. So if Stannis does dream and think about Courtney Penrose, I don't think he's mentioned it. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and link that one. For all you aspiring theory writers or people that want to do analysis or your own content, Search of Ice and Fire is a godsend. Seriously, you should check it out. A lot of times people think I'm much smarter than I am because I look up the quotes ahead of time, but it makes it, it allows you to confirm things that are like on the just the edge of your memory and you're like i think this happened but i don't know which chapter even what book like i don't want to crack four books to find one quote you can just use that to go look for it i i would be curious though how much stannis thinks about courtney he thinks about renly a lot as we get into a feast for crows and a dance with dragons he probably what does he say he'll go to his grave thinking about renly's peach and what that means to him and how he killed his brother he seems to have come to terms with it at least through a dance with dragons and has finally been like boy that really wasn't worth it look where we are now i killed my brother for freezing the snow and stuff like that well one thing is that i know emmett has made this point pretty well in not a cast that stannis is a very changed person by the time a dance with dragon comes around he's somebody that has recognize more of his flaws he's he, he's acting more human basically so i wouldn't be surprised if that happens oh san rixon did you change your your name and now it says mallory with a little witch on it switch accounts or yeah it's it is great for 20 questions search of ice and fire is great actually one of the song of ice and fire mods uh zion he made a brand new one that he's testing out it doesn't work super well because it's just a test but he's trying to make one that's an archive of not only everything in the Song of Ice and Fire, but also Fire and Blood, and then adding in So Spake Martins, which is essentially the fandom term for George's quotes. So if you want to check that out, give it a test. I've had trouble with it. I think it's because it's a it's a test site, so it doesn't work super well. Probably overwhelming the server, but if you want to give that a look. Oh yeah, switch to your work account. I think, well, AJ Bokar says, especially if he gets to the point where Mel tells him he's not Azor high. I think Stannis has understood at this point that he's not a Zora High. Well, at least he's changed his perspective. I think the quote is that he thought he needed to get the throne to save the world, but he recognizes now he has to save the world to get the throne, that he has priorities mixed up early on in the books. Certainly a healthier understanding, sort of, at least for him mentally, but it's, it's, there's still the burning of uh, Shireen out on the horizon, so... I wouldn't give Chris a lot of credit on that count yet. There's still a lot of horrible things for him to do before he probably ends up dying. I doubt he gets axed by Brienne, but I don't know. That was one of those things that, that I thought was a little, little not great about Game of Thrones, to say the least. That They took Jamie and Brienne out of the Riverlands, especially Brienne, for her plot into... A Dance of Dragons and a Feast for Crows, largely because they cut Stoneheart and they didn't really know what to do with her. 
So they essentially had her on Stannis sort of and try to save Sansa. And that was sort of it. They clearly knew where she was going, but they they had they had trouble with the, with when they excise what George wrote. They were like, oh, God, we need to figure out something to do with this character. Not the best. I would be surprised if it's Brienne that actually delivers delivers the last blow to Stannis. Although it was satisfying. <laughs> Although that is one thing that the show did that the books did not is that they put a lot more effort into making show Renly likable. Book Renly is a bit harder to like. I think that's going to be about it. Unless you guys have any last things you want to throw out there. Oh, I always forget to check Patreon. I mean, anyways, Tim usually says something. Nope, didn't this time. So yeah, if you, that would probably be it until about November. What did I say? November 8th. Uh, I'm going to take about a month off. Oh, November 13th will probably be the next stream. So thank you guys for hanging out today, for talking about some shadow assassins. I hope this got you into the mood for Halloween because they really are a horror element. They are very strange. They come out of nowhere. They're terrifying. They literally terrify everyone that comes across them. The idea that there could be more in the Winds of Winter is something that Melisandre may try and draw, let's say, Jon Snow's life fire. What kind of shadow assassin could she make from, I don't know, an actual half Targaryen? That would be something cool to see, especially if she realizes who John is and that he has King's blood. That could be off the chain. I guess I should have put that in here as a topic, like shadow assassins in the winds of winter and a dream of spring. But it's certainly possible they're not done. Melisandre's still alive. She says she's more powerful at wall than she's ever been. She can still do it. She just needs to find somebody. She needs to find a target, and she needs to find somebody to make to give her life fire, basically, which I guess she absorbs via via her vagina. So. However, that would work. That would be interesting. Maybe she'll use a shadow assassin to kill Roos or something like that. Also, I wonder if Bran can create them. That would be something. Essentially, there's a thought. Bran, what if Bran could make shadow assassins? Who would he use them on? Children of the Forest magic can block them. Then they're related somehow. Maybe Bran could do it. That'd be pretty cool. Anyway, I will see you guys in November. I'm going to look out for your subscription boxes though i'm gonna be working on videos in the meantime when i'm not when i'm not doing wedding things so yeah look out for those i will see you all